0: Good morning. I have to say that was a little half-baked, but I'll settle for it. This is Lesson 8 in our series in the Thessalonian Epistles, and uh, this I've titled for the moment, Loving Leadership. Leadership. I I was thinking about a a few years ago when I was uh, speaking, uh, doing some in-prison seminars in a prison in Indiana, and I was sitting on the little platform right there about ready to speak, and this older lady, probably as old as I am or younger, she turns to me and she says, you're chomping at the bit, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I really am. Well I got to confess to you I am chomping at the bit this morning. This this text for me is a very very special text and a very important text I think for us to understand. And I'm really agonizing about whether I can handle it all all four verses of it in the, the time allotted. I, I want to. Uh, one of the things that has occurred to me this week is that the if you take this whole section, maybe the whole of the epistle, but if you take everything from the end of chapter three on through chapter five and verse twenty-two, the the, the overwhelming, overriding theme is sanctification. And I, I don't have time to play that out much. But look with me, for example, at chapter three, verse eleven which are the verses immediately preceding the application part of the Thessalonian epistle, the first Thessalonian epistle. 311. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father. Is that not sanctification? I think it is. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's sanctification in relationship to the second coming. And that's the way I like to look at the, the larger section is sanctification in res, with respect to the second coming. When you come to 4, 1 through 12, there's that uh, section where Paul says that sanctification is the will of God for you. And then he goes to sexual morality and then he goes to what, if I had space on the screen, I would have called social responsibility or work, not being a freeloader on the church or on society. And then I think when you come to 4.13 through 5.11, you really are looking at the second coming, and again, under that major umbrella of sanctification. And I see those texts as the as the right attitude and mindset. It's not until five. Uh, fourteen fifteen i 'm sorry, that you really get to the string of imperatives and commands that are going to be listed and and uh, you have more exhortation, but it seems to me that when you come to four thirteen through eighteen it 's talking about the fate of those who have died in Christ uh, along with those who are alive with Christ, but their fate is spending eternity in fellowship with each other at the feet of our Lord Jesus. And that's the mindset, I think, for faithful Christian living in the midst of great persecution. Because you know where your future is and therefore you can live dangerously in the present. When you come to 5, 1 through 11, now you're talking about sanctification again, I believe. And as I understand it, sanctification is the radical change in one's life. Going from death to life, from, from darkness to light... Uh, and therefore, there is this radical change that you see, for instance, described in Ephesians four seventeen and following, where every aspect of our life changes. So I see five one through eleven as contrasting the old way of life, the old attitude toward the judgment, the coming judgment of our Lord, the day of the Lord, versus the mindset of the believer. And it's that attitude which is to override as you press on and move to the application uh, and exhortations that will follow. Then you have this whole issue of church leadership as it bears on sanctification and as it bears on the second coming and I, I want to demonstrate that as this message uh, proceeds. and then you have uh, five sixteen through twenty two which is the priorities. Of church life. That is, what the church ought to be doing. And again, I would say that in the context, what should we be doing as Christians knowing the day of the Lord is at hand and indeed it is near and we should be watchful and working. Now, let me talk about the structure uh, and then, by the way, the benediction. And look at this, right after you finish with all that string of commands, we come back to sanctification again, 523. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be presented complete, preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you have sanctification and the second coming tied together. So I say when it starts that way and ends that way and everything in between is that way, this is about sanctification and the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a word about the structure of our text. Four verses. Uh, that's pretty easy. It seems to me that what you have is uh, an initial word of instruction and then a follow-up verse. So you have the instruction of verse 12, follow-up of verse 13. Recognize leaders, and then it talks about your attitude uh, toward those leaders. Live in, esteem them highly, live in peace with one another. Then you have the instruction about admonishing the unruly, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, being patient with all men. Follow-up comes in verse 15. See that no one repays another another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for others. So you have a command, a follow-up. Command, a follow-up, or an exhortation, if you would, and a follow-up. Now, let's take a look at recognizing church leadership, verses 12 and, and uh, 13 of our text. It seems clear to me that formal leaders have not yet been acknowledged or recognized or appointed, however you want to say that, in Thessalonica. You, in the greeting that Paul gives, it does not, like Philippians chapter 1, greet the elders and the deacons, It never, in fact, names elders or deacons, uh, even in this text. It doesn't name the title. We would expect that because Paul had an early departure, that that may well have been the case, and therefore you can understand why he would feel the need to tell the church it is time to acknowledge their leadership. When you look at Acts chapter 14 and verse 23, this is a description of the return trip, as it were, after the first missionary journey. On the return, it says that the apostles went back and revisited the churches that they had established and appointed elders in each of those churches. And and so we see it's very important for the Apostle Paul that the churches that have been established are churches that have recognized leadership. Imagine the chaos, especially when there were those who sought authority and sought positions of power and leadership who were false teachers, like you see in Titus, like you see in Timothy. That would be a real problem. So that we see then when you look at 1 Timothy or when you look at the book of Titus, in both of those epistles, Timothy and Titus have been spent, sent to churches and one of their tasks was to correct false teaching and another of their tasks was to appoint leaders in those churches uh, that, would, that would be able to turn the church away from the false teaching that had already begun to emerge. So, I believe that when you come to this part of our text, you have a a growing, thriving church without designated leadership. And that is what Paul is calling upon that uh, that church to do. By the way, this is a point where it's amazing to me what the commentaries and translations do with this. I've never seen so many different words used in translations as you move your way uh, through uh, this text. But let's talk about uh, who the you is uh, when Paul speaks in verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you, and uh, the New American Standard says appreciate, the, uh, the Net Bible says that you uh, acknowledge, and I think that's a, that's a great choice of, of words. But let me just give you a feel for the, for the choices in the translations. Appreciate, New American Standard. Respect, ESV and IV. Give recognition to, now that's a good one, uh, the Holman uh, Standard Bible. uh, Honor, uh, New Living Translation. Be considerate to, eh, uh, New Jerusalem Bible. And and the most literal translation is the King James Version. No, that's really the word, no. Those who uh, work hard, labor hard among you. To me, it is very clear that the you is the congregation. And the them, or those, are those men who have emerged already as leaders within the body by their service and their life. They've already manifested leadership. And so this is an instruction that Paul gives to the church To acknowledge those people formally as leaders. Now, you'll notice I have to add not women because it's masculine uh, participles that we have there, not clergy. Now, this is where you really jump, I jump off from the boat of the other guys. This is not talking about uh, the clergy as opposed to the laity. This is talking about leaders. It doesn't even call them elders or deacons. It just says those who, and we'll come to that, but those who go before you, those who lead in these various ways. And not singular, but plural, those. So we have a plurality of leadership that is to be appointed. Now, I am not saying in that that there is no place for somebody to be involved full time. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 1 Timothy chapter 5 double honor for those who labor hard same word by the way that's used here that labor hard in teaching and preaching I'm not saying that so but that's not what Paul is is focusing on here he is focusing on the need of the church for leadership so he says that they are to acknowledge or recognize those who are leaders who are these people well I assume he's talking about elders and perhaps deacons, uh, but he's certainly talking about their their designated uh, leadership. I don't know why he doesn't use the word elders as he does elsewhere, but it's pretty apparent to me that's what he's talking about. These are men who are already functioning as leaders. This is not one of those cases where you say, let's get with some of our good old boys and, and we'll appoint them to leadership and hope they work out. That's not the way it works. These are men who have by their lives and their leadership in the assembly already manifested themselves to be leaders. So they are already functioning. That's the present participles that describe them. It says that they labor or they work hard. This is the word for strenuous labor. It's the word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let those be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor hard at preaching and teaching. Now, if you think about it, you've got to put yourself in the context of what he's going to say in 2 Thessalonians 3. What he's already said about himself in 1 Thessalonians 2, and that is, Paul, when he was with them, labored amongst them, right? He worked hard. Acts 20, he worked day and night. Paul was a hard worker. And by the way, when you come to Titus chapter 1 and it says, uh, all Cretans are evil bellies or lazy gluttons. And, And so Paul's got this thing about freeloading Uh, people who go around uh, uh, freeloading themselves off of the church. These are people who labor hard, and they have seen what that means by watching Paul. I don't think that they would miss his point there at all. These are people who lead. I do not like the Net uh, Bible's translation, preside over. I don't think that's the point at all. Especially when he's just said, they labor among you, not labor over you, but labor among you. These are those who, and the word literally means to stand in front of, to stand before. I see this as a a reference to leaders as those who blaze the trail, so to speak who are out in front of the church blazing that trail and others follow after them. Now, I don't think that means elders have to initiate every ministry in the church, but it means, again, they are already actively at work and people follow them as they go about the ministry that God has uh, given them uh, to do. Thirdly, they are those who admonish you. Uh, Stan Schultz said, observed this morning that admonish is kind of a word that we've kind of lost in our culture. And, and I really believe that. I think that as a church, we have done reasonably well, not extraordinarily well, but reasonably well in exercising discipline where necessary. But the reality is, folks, exercising discipline is like going out to an accident scene and just sweeping up the pieces What you really want is to stop problems before they reach the disaster stage. And that's admonition. Admonition has the element of instruction, but it's almost always instruction that has warning. So, for example, if you look at the book of Proverbs, here is, in a sense, a father speaking to his son. What does he say? Son, here's what's going to happen. Look out. Madam Folly's going to be out there and she's going to be waving her little finger, calling for you to come. And I'm telling you where that's going to lead. Don't go there. That's admonition. That's one of the things that we as a church, I think, and I speak generally and specifically, it's probably not one of our strongest points. And that is seeing somebody heading for derailment and not really saying, you know what? I think your marriage may be in trouble. I think your moral life may be in trouble. I see these signs, and and I think I need to talk to you about that. That's admonition, and that's what these leaders uh, do in part. Now, I put in brackets, point three, those who meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. It's clear to me here that that the focus is on those who have already demonstrated leadership. But it would also seem clear to me from other scriptures that Paul is not saying just that you look at what they do. And and so I would superimpose Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and say, not only do they need to be doing what leaders do, but they need to have the qualities that leaders must have in order for them to lead and follow in the church. It's not in the text, I think personally, that it is assumed, how are leaders uh, acknowledged? I remember when I was involved uh, with a church in the in the general area, and they were just getting started, and I spoke uh, three times on leadership and and uh, one of the men who was involved there said to me isn 't it, uh, it puzzling to you that the New Testament does not tell us the process by which New Testament leaders, uh, elders and deacons are appointed? And I said to him, not at all. It informs me. I take the silence of Scripture to be saying to me that there is not one particular system by which leaders may be appointed. Now, if you look in the New Testament, you see there were times where Titus or Timothy went As the representative of Paul and they appointed them. There are times like Acts 14 where where Paul and and Barnabas uh, appointed leadership when they went about. So there's not necessarily one particular way, but they are to be uh, acknowledged uh, as such. And here's where you come to the parallel passage. Look with me for just a moment at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It's not the same word as the word know or acknowledge. But look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning at verse 15. And by the way, you remember, the church at Corinth has got all kinds of problems. And much of the problem has to do with bad leadership. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. And in 2 Corinthians 11, these are really messengers of Satan. They're false apostles. So they claim authority and they strive to lead. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15, Now I urge you, brethren, that you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. They're already serving. That you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I think that's a parallel text. And again, it doesn't say exactly how that uh, is going to work out. But what Paul is saying is, here's the kind of person you ought to be following. Now, put yourself in subjection to them. These ought to be your leaders. So I believe that there is uh, some process by which that should take place, but it is not necessarily a rigid process. Now, I want to talk to you for just a a moment or so about uh, our history uh, as a church, how were leaders uh, uh, first appointed at at Cbc? as you know, we came out of believers' chapel and and so initially we knew that we needed leadership, uh, but we also knew that it was too soon to really see men functioning in the role and be able to acknowledge them as elders. And so we, uh, we had a group of men who met for a year. Every week we met and talked about the church and how it ought to operate. And, and if you can believe this, the, the elders at Believer's Chapel finally said to us, Will you guys please hurry up? Can you believe that? they told us to hurry Woohoo! anyway we f- we did in fact they actually told us the sunday they were going to close one service uh, and and sort of squeeze some some folks out which they did they went from four services to three and and that was the sunday we started but we had a group of men who met and worked through a number of the issues and then we appointed what we called provisional leaders those men came from that group We ran their names by the elders at Believer's Chapel. And in addition to those provisional leaders, we had a transition elder, Alan Hull, who came with us for six months from Believer's Chapel on loan and and was met with us and led with us until we were all comfortable that we were moving in the right direction. We specified that at the end of one year, that position would be terminated. There would be nobody that functioned in that capacity at the end of a year. At the end of that year, we all that were provisional leaders stepped aside and commenced the process of acknowledging leaders. If I remember correctly, that was the point at which I taught on elders and deacons, and then we asked our congregation, uh, in effect, to nominate people that they believed met those qualifications, and, and we went through a process of evaluation using the, the scriptures uh, that talk about function and leadership qualities, and at that point we appointed our first elders, and, and in in many ways, in a way that was remarkably similar to what I, I see here, although I must confess, I don't think this was a primary text at the point that we thought about it. I think 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 were probably the, the, the primary text. Now, let's talk uh, about, well, let me say something about now how we do it in the present. At this stage, uh, we look uh, uh, within the body, we look as to whether or not we need uh, additional elders to function with us. We look within the body, and, and I must confess that over a period of time, especially with the recognition of deacons and the similarity of, of, the, of the qualifications for deacons, it, we begin to see in the evaluation forms, here are some people who really stand out. And, and so it, it isn't too much of a mystery, and you know, then what we do is we, or you may not know, we meet with, with that particular individual and their wife. We ask them to fill out an evaluation of themselves, their wife to fill out an evaluation and ask them how they think they stand with regard to the work and the qualifications of an elder. Then we have their ministry group, uh, evaluate them, and then, we make them. Uh, w- then we then we have an evaluation that we make available to the whole congregation. And we have them serve in that. You'll, I don't think there's anybody in the in the P provisional slot right now, but. If there were, they would have a P beside their name, which means that they're in that six month or so testing period. At the end of that period, then we have a final evaluation and and would move ahead one way or the other with the the recognition uh, uh, as an elder officially. We've never had, that I can remember, somebody in that provisional category who hasn't um, uh, followed through unless it was by their initiative to, uh, to decline. Now, the relationship of elders and deacons uh, at CBC. Now, this is not strictly an exposition at this point, but I think it may be helpful to you because he doesn't talk about elders per se or deacons per se. He talks about those who were doing leadership work. So let me just tell you how that works at CBC. First of all, no deacon board. We learned that the hard way we learned that the hard way other people had warned us i think the reason is if you have a deacon board then the deacon board and what's worse all right i'll go on and say what's worse is to have an elder board deacon board and board of deaconesses now you've got three groups of people making overlapping decisions and it just doesn't work you need one governing board in our opinion that's the elders who are board. deacons uh, are assistants, but they do not meet as a group to make a collective corporate uh, decisions. Um, you note the very similar qualifications with very few exceptions in 1 Timothy 3. We believe, oh, there was a guy named Dick Parker at Believer's Chapel, and he used to say, the elders do the spiritual work and the deacons do the dirty work. They go around picking up the Kleenex and stuff. We don't believe that we believe that elders and deacons both do spiritual work. And we believe because the qualifications are so similar, these are spiritual qualifications. You don't need many qualifications to pick up Kleenex, folks, but you do need spiritual qualifications to do spiritual ministry. Our view is that the deacons... Are involved in the same general shepherding ministry, but they answer to the elders and they support the elders in that ministry. So deacons are helping elders carry out the task which God has given them to do, but the deacons are participate, uh, participants in that process. And as you know, we have come to the conclusion because of the importance that we place on ministry groups that that we believe, A, there ought to be a plurality of leadership in the ministry group, and that means co-leaders, and B, that those leaders ought to meet the qualification for a deacon. And so our ministry group leaders are deacons. All right, that was an aside. Let's come back to verse 13, which is the other matters or the follow-up to verse 12. Esteem them highly in love... For their work, I have to tell you that my experience is when somebody moves from being a non-elder to being an elder, you join the group from you change and leave the us group and you join the them group, and 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 one of the things that happens with leadership is leadership almost always then becomes blamable for whatever's going wrong. It's just it, it's just the the nature of the beast, and so. It seems to me that what Paul is saying is they need to be highly regarded, not just submitted to, but respected and regarded highly in love because of their work. The live in peace among yourselves is a fascinating thing. You know, you're saying to yourself, is he talking to the elders and saying, you guys get along now? (laughs) I want to tell you that there are churches that that really needs to happen. We've been blessed as a church. But but I got to tell you, sometimes in this plurality of leadership, you know, there can be all kinds of church fights, and there can obviously be disagreements between congregation or groups and leadership. And so it seems to me that Paul's saying, "Come on, you guys!" When I say to appoint a plurality group, that means you guys got to get along, and you got to work at that. Now, verses fourteen and fifteen are really. I think where I get off the ship, uh, probably with with many who would be interpreting this text, A.T. Robertson would be one of them. He understands that the you now changes and that the you now is speaking to those who are the appointed leaders. And here's why I think he's wrong. One, I I do acknowledge that when you you look at the uh, translation in verse 12, it's the word ask, literally. It's not the word exhort, as you would expect. That comes in verse 14. So there is the difference between ask and urge, 12 and 14. But among you is exactly, exactly the same two words. So for me, I have to say when you come to the antecedent that is when you're saying you and you want to know who it is folks you don't change yous in the next verse and talk about some other group when they used to be the them and now they're the yous it just doesn't fit if the the you has changed then the text ought to clearly indicate i'm talking to a different group of yous and that is just that, uh, that group of men who have been appointed and acknowledged to lead. See, the functions that Paul encourages are not just elder slash deacon functions. There are all kinds of things that all of us ought to be doing, and the things that he is describing in verse 14 are you all kinds of things. Not just elder kinds of things, and I want to just look at one verse for the moment to demonstrate that, Romans chapter fifteen and verse fourteen. And concerning you, my brethren, no no indication anywhere in this in this chapter. he's talking only to leaders. and concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and and able to admonish one another. Hey, that's the congregation. And that basically is what Paul is saying uh, in our text as well, if I understand it correctly. D, when you come to Ephesians chapter 4, the work of the ministry is not the work of a select few, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, The work of the ministry is the work of the body. And those gifted people are there to facilitate the body doing its job of carrying on the ministry. So it's not this elite group who who ministers and the rest of these poor sheep just follow blindly behind. They are equippers. And I would say the same thing is true with elders and deacons in a church. Do they have ministry to conduct? Of course they do. But they ought to be facilitators so that other people are moving into and taking initiative in areas of ministry that they couldn't and shouldn't be doing themselves as as elders. So for me, that's only consistent with uh, our ecclesiology. Now, look at what uh, we're all, the congregation, is exhorted to do. Admonish, same word as verse 12, by the way warn. Admonish the undisciplined. Boy, you got all kinds of translations. New American Standard, New King James. King James says unruly. Uh, Net Bible, New Jerusalem Bible, undisciplined. ESV, NIV, Holman Standard Bible says lazy or idle. And again, think of it in the context that Paul is going to be addressing uh, has already addressed in chapter 2 in terms of his ministry, his working hard, and he's going to talk about now in 2 in Thess chapter 3 about those who are freeloaders and who aren't working and, and they need to be, in effect, uh, rebuked, admonished, disciplined within the church uh, so that they uh, clean up uh, their proverbial act. The undisciplined need to be admonished. That's really critical because it isn't just the elders or the leaders who carry out discipline responsibilities? Think about it. In fact, if you look at the texts in the New Testament that talk about discipline, Matthew 18, Galatians 6, it doesn't say elders. It says, if anyone sees a brother overtaken in a fault, that's, that's you all. Now, the elders probably should be involved in that process. But if the congregation is not with the leadership in dealing with those issues, then then the, the leadership's positions aren't going to carry a lot of weight. So it needs to be followed through. Comfort, that is the word console, and it is used of those who come in John 11 to comfort or console Mary and Martha twice in that text. So comfort or console those who are discouraged or faint-hearted. Literally, the word is small-souled, rare word. Small-souled. But those who really are sort of withering under some kind of duress, they are to be comforted and consoled. And again, that's not just the work of elders. That's the work of the whole body that comes alongside to those who are in need. Thirdly, help literally cling to. It says, remember, no man can serve two masters. He will cling to the one And despise the other That's the word Or cling to Hold fast to what is true So you come along And you cling to those Who are weak or helpless You grab hold of them And you don't let them go There again That is not just elder Or deacon work That is body work That ought to be carried on Within the church And of course In the context of all that You're going to need patience Ministry is tough It is tough and 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 all the people in need are not lovely people any more than all of us who lead are not always lovely people and so we had better be patient toward all in the midst of it now the the secondary matters I really wrestled with this verse because it's the first verse where you have an imperative and then there's that string that follow it. So I didn't know whether to keep it with this or put it with the next one, but it seems to me it fits here as the follow-up to verse 14. See to it no one pays evil, it repays evil for evil. Always seek the good of others. I would say this. Think Middle Eastern. Think Middle Eastern. I don't think we really grasp this because we don't live in a culture... Uh, like the middle east where you have the 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 mccoys and the hatfields times 10 Uh, no i'm serious i am serious somebody does an offense against your clan against your family it is remembered for generations and somebody generations removed from an offense may be killed that's how serious this thing is that's how serious this is in the church where you have these rivalries and, and tribalism and this stuff that goes on, do not think that doesn't impact the church. And what Paul is saying is, you see to it as a church. Don't put up with rivalry. And again, think about well, how this works from the grassroots level. It's not just the elders finally getting word of it and they come pouncing down. It's you listening to a conversation. And you ought to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're thinking evil. You're trying to get even with this guy. Scripture says no that 's the work of the body as well as the work of leadership, if necessary okay here comes the the uh, the good part i had I had I saw it as as somewhat of an insight uh, um, uh, collectively by us as elders when we came to the conclusion that the work of leadership is shared between elders and deacons, that they're not doing two different kinds of work, they're doing the same kind of work, and that the deacons help the elders in doing that. What I didn't see that this text has, has, has revealed, at least to me, is that there are actually three levels of leadership. Elders, deacons, congregation. And that Paul is really calling the congregation to come to life. Now, for those of you who have political uh, inclinations, it seems to me that this text and what it teaches uh, in reference to the church is what most of you believe, or many of you believe. I better stop there. Many of you believe about government. Do you want the federal government to be telling you everything that you're to do? Isn't that what all this squabbles going on right now? And you're saying, "But out. Well, part of it is that neither should elders be micromanaging our lives. They need to deal with things on policy and collective level, yes. <laughs> Securing our borders, yes, and, and so on. But, but, hey, there's a certain role to be played, right? By the top. And then, let's just say states. Uh, would be like deacons and there are other things that ought to be left at a lower level they're not different they're on a different level of responsibility and we would say would we not I would say that's where individual rights and responsibilities come on what we're saying to government is there are some things I don't want the state or the federal government telling me what to do because it's my job that's what he's saying on, on, a, on a church level. That's what he's saying. There is a realm for, for top level leadership. There is the realm for supportive leadership. And there is a realm for individual responsibility and leadership and initiative that every Christian ought to be stepping up to the plate to do. Ministry is the work of the body. Oh, I want to say this point B. New Testament ecclesiology produces leaders better than any other system. Flat, categorical, dogmatic, here's what I believe statement. New Testament ecclesiology produces leaders better and faster than any other church polity. You have a church where you've got a dictator up, up yonder. And folks, sad to say, dictators don't like competition, whether that's in the political realm or in the church realm. And so you actually suppress other people by rising to the top because you don't want competition. That's, that's the realities. If you don't know about the realities of uh, the human uh, critch, creature in the pulpit, well, there it is. So, so we need to be very, very thankful for New Testament ecclesiology. Let me give you two examples. One, our ecclesiology that says men ought to lead... Folks, if you stand back and you let the women lead, you won't have men leaders. Just look around. Our ecclesiology says, if there's going to be leadership in the congregation, then men are going to have to step up to the plate. And if they don't, we're going to stand here and look at ourselves like, what's going on? It's a beautiful system to develop leadership too. The meeting of the church is a beautiful place for men to lead not only to say to men you need to lead every week we sit here before this table and yes somebody starts the meeting but somebody better get off their chair and lead us in worship there's no better place than the new testament church for leaders to be developed i believe that with all my heart d job description for everyone See, if I look at our text, I see a job description for leaders and I see a job description for everybody else. And here's the corker. And it is to lead. It is to lead. Leadership is not just the obligation of elders and deacons. Leadership is the obligation of every believer in certain categories of your life. You need to step out. You need to step forward, whether it's in sharing your faith or calling something wrong in the context of your work or wherever it is. All of us need to lead in our appropriate places. And here's a text that just popped out at me, and I I confess to you, I've I've never seen it in this light before. What is the relationship between church leadership, or should I say leadership in the church, which now has three tiers? What is the relationship between leadership in the church and last days? Am I really squeezing this a little too hard and pressing it into my own mold? Take a look at Luke chapter 12. This text is fascinating. There are other texts that make it clear that there is a direct correspondence between what we do on earth and what happens in heaven. Lay up treasures in heaven. Luke chapter 16 Those who are faithful in little things will be faithful in much. But this Luke 12 text, I had never seen in this light. Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 40, You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Does that sound like Paul? Does that sound like what we've just been studying about prophetic things? A time when we won't expect? So, Peter says... In verse 41, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? The answer, by the way, is going to be everyone. But Jesus then answers him and says this, verse 42 of Luke 12, and and the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants? Is that not leadership being put in charge? Leadership, we're going to reign with him Okay To give them their rations at the proper time, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing. Underscore that, so doing, doing what? Leading, leading. That's what he's saying. If you're going to lead in heaven, you better lead now, and you need to be ready because you don't know the hour when he's coming. So what he's saying is, is leadership relevant to the second coming? You better believe it is. Because not only are we to designate and acknowledge leaders and submit to them and honor them and respect them and esteem them, we are to lead in the categories that God has given to us and the degree to which we embrace the leadership God puts in our lap is the degree to which He will delegate leadership to us in the kingdom. Well, I don't know if you get excited about it, but I do. This is a powerful text, and it really speaks to the way in which we do church. Father, thank you for this text. Help us to see how important how we live now is to eternity. Help us to see that we not only need to acknowledge and submit your leaders we need to be leaders in our own areas of influence help us to be obedient to that and father if there's someone here this morning who's never submitted to the lord jesus christ as the supreme leader who's never accepted the sacrifice that he made on the cross of calvary so that their sins might be forgiven and they might have eternal life may they trust in him in jesus name amen